Last week's podcast was about talent, how to attract it, how to keep it. And it created some really great questions and feedback. So I'd like this week to do another experiment in format around the idea of mentoring and talent. The last two podcasts in particular were about one of the entrepreneurs featured in my upcoming book, The Entrepreneur's Ethic, Ewing Kaufman. Kaufman had founded Marion Laboratories, a pharmaceutical business in 1950. And by the 1980s, that business, Marion Laboratories, was a billion-dollar business. But Kaufman's lasting legacy is about mentoring. If you're a sports fan, you've probably heard of a coaching tree. Coaching trees are common in the National Football League, for example, and most coaches there can trace their lineage back to a certain head coach who they had previously worked for as an assistant. The largest coaching tree in the, this last season, at least according to the sources that I googled, was for the team that I cheer for, the Kansas City Chiefs. Head coach Andy Reid has now in the league five different active head coaches who spent time as his assistant. One of those, for example, is the Los Angeles Rams head coach, Sean McDermott, who spent 12 years as an assistant with Reed, and he's won a Super Bowl for himself. Kaufman and other high-impact entrepreneurs like him leave trees also. His philanthropy, for example, aimed at that. The Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation supports education and entrepreneurship at the core of its activities. So today, I'll try a new format, a solo riff, if you will, on mentoring. Last week's podcast on talent, how to attract it and how to keep it resonated. So I'll dive into mentoring through the lens of three decisions I've made. One practical, one principled, and one whimsical or weird. First, the practical. It was 1996. I worked full-time for then Pioneer Hybrid International, a multinational seed company. And all I could do was think about quitting my job, a job that I enjoyed most days at least. I found myself in Iowa City, where at the University of Iowa, an Iowa venture capitalist named John Papajohn had provided the funds to start the first entrepreneurship fund or entrepreneurship program at a university in the state of Iowa, the Papajohn Center for Entrepreneurship. Today, there are programs at Iowa State University where I work and other universities around Iowa as Mr. Papajohn gave funds to get those programs started too. At any rate, the first director of the Papajohn Center for Entrepreneurship at Iowa City, who I sought out was a guy named Ed Moult. And so I remember going to visit with Ed, who was probably in his early 60s at the time and a very experienced entrepreneur, coming back to the university to, to give back to young and aspiring entrepreneurs. And basically what I was looking for from Ed was feedback on whether my idea for a company that would eventually become eMarkets, working in this new thing called the internet back then to uh, develop and launch software applications for electronic commerce between agricultural businesses. And my question for Ed was, is my idea good enough to quit my job? Tried though as I might with Ed to get some feedback from him on my idea for a new business, he didn't seem particularly interested. <laughs> He kept asking me actually really kind of personal questions. So at some point I said, Ed, you know, I really appreciate your time, but I came to you today to try to get some feedback on my idea for a new business. And you keep asking me these really 
personal questions. Like, what's up with that? And Ed looked at me and he said, you know, Kevin, I've been doing this, meaning entrepreneurial things, for 40 years. And what I know is that every day I jump out of bed for one of two reasons. Number one, joy and exhilaration over what I think the day is going to bring. Number two, fear of abject failure, financial disaster, burnt relationships, and the millions of other things that can go wrong in an entrepreneurial venture. What I'm trying to figure out, Kevin, is whether you're built for that up and down nature of what the entrepreneurial journey is all about. So I can't remember exactly how I replied to Mr. Moult, but I guess ultimately my answer to his question was, I am built for that because ultimately I did a month or two later resign my job and work on starting my first company. Zoom forward to 2009 when I came back to Iowa State University to do some of what Ed was doing back in the 1990s, and that's mentoring of aspiring entrepreneurs in a university environment. Mentoring by its very nature became a bigger part of the deal for me. And it wasn't that I hadn't sought mentors like Ed Mould. It wasn't that I hopefully had provided some mentoring to people as part of my team. But when you have the opportunity to get out of your day-to-day -day business and think about things on a broader scale, especially coming back to run an entrepreneurship program at a university, mentoring becomes a bigger part of it. And so part of that mentoring is students asking for advice, sometimes very tactical advice on what sort of position they should look for, what companies they should search for from an internship perspective, what classes they should take, things like that. And so sometimes giving them advice of that nature when it's tactical like that is okay. But sometimes I don't think it is. Essentially, my learning is that you don't let someone delegate their decision to you. What they're searching for is kind of an out on their own decision-making. And so I don't want to provide somebody advice on something where they need to take serious control of their own agency and make their own decision. So how to handle it? Ultimately, if you have somebody in front of you trying to delegate their decision-making to you, not real mentoring, well, what I've learned through the years is that you just ask questions. And those questions might take a different form, but ultimately the question that you ask again and again and again is this, what do you want? And I found that asking that question can be really tough because oftentimes we can't answer it. We don't know what we want. And certainly when you're young, oftentimes that is the case. You know you want something more. You know you want something different. You know you want some sort of a change, but you don't know what it is exactly what you want. People are, by their nature, restless. So what do they want? Something that's different, but sometimes they just can't put their finger on it. So a couple of stories related to that, both of uh, young women that were very active in our entrepreneurship program at Iowa State University. One student was working on a very interesting technology in the cattle industry. It had been developed by a professor actually at a different university, but she had picked it up and begun to explore its potential commercial applications. Nobody had actually moved it forward from beyond sort of research stage at a university to whether it could be a commercially viable technology and maybe even a, a company at that point. 
And so get, she got very positive feedback from people in the cattle and the beef industry that this technology could have value. Her work on the technical feasibility seemed to point to the fact that it was feasible. From a cost perspective and from a technical perspective, she was very interested in it and so forth. Anyway, as she came toward graduation, she had the classic decision to make, take a job or keep working on this business that I've started. And so there was a program at Iowa State University that offered $50,000 packages of non-dilutive funding to develop technologies that could become commercialized. And it didn't have to be technology from Iowa State. And the proposals were relatively short to write and so forth. And so my advice to her was, why don't you put in a $50,000 proposal and that can become your startup package for continuing to work on the business should you choose to do so. So maybe the third or fourth time she was in my office asking me to write the proposal for her and I did offer to help, but I wanted her to write the proposal. <laughs> I found myself across the desk from a young lady who was crying, which is not what I'm going for <laughs> necessarily. And it wasn't a bad thing necessarily, but she was dealing with the emotion of a big decision. Do I want to do this? Do I not? And I asked her in about 10 different ways, as I recall the conversation that, that day, what do you want? Do you want to do this new business? Do you want to take a job? Do you want to write the proposal? Are you interested enough in it to spend the next year working on it? And ultimately, tearfully, her answer was, I don't think I want to do it. I think I want to take a position in industry, which is ultimately what she did, and she's doing very well now. Story number two, another young woman who was active in our program, she had developed a nice business for herself and saw it grow even during the pandemic when not much was happening at all. When she got to her last semester, the year following the pandemic, she had generated, as I remember, about $30,000 in revenue. The business was going just fine. She was making the same sort of decision. Do I launch the business or do I take a job? She built projections over what she thought her next year would look like. She had what I thought were reasonable projections that her business could generate more than $100,000 in revenue and certainly a reasonable living for her to make compared to taking a job. She, of course, asked for some feedback from her parents. <laughs> they were supportive, as I remember, for whatever she wanted to do, but one of her parents in particular kind of liked the idea, shall we say, of a more secure future taking a job with a salary and benefits and all that stuff. So she came to my office one day. Again, there were some tears. And this is not what I tried to do, but this is what happens when people are making big decisions sometimes. Anyway, through some tears, tears of happiness, she told me she made a decision. And I asked what the decision was. And she said, I've decided that I'm going to start my company, I'm not going to take a, take a job. And I, of course, am the not jobs guy, so I congratulated her on that. She'd only told her mom so far. <laughs> I was second. I told her not to tell her dad that she had told me first. <laughs> but asking questions to get her to that point, she had come to a different answer. But if I provided any mentoring, hopefully it was asking the right questions. And of course, asking questions at its core is where learning comes from, trying to ask the right questions at the right time. 
Getting back to Ewing Kaufman and reflecting later in his life, and he, he pointed to the importance of learning from people. And I found this quote in some of the research that I've done in developing case studies about him. Quoting him, when I call somebody up on the phone and I say, I need to learn something. Can I come by and see you for a few minutes and have you teach me? It makes the recipient of that phone call feel good. It shows your impression of him, that he is intelligent, intelligent and capable, and therefore he is all the more willing to help you. It's a good lesson that I think we can take from you and Kaufman. Number two, the principal decision. At my second company, Decision Commodities, I remember it as a lovely May day. Our business was selling risk management products to farmers in May, and the U.S. Midwest is planting season. So on a nice May day, we didn't have much sales activity with farmers. And so my sales team had pretty light days in May, and it was a good time to take days off or to not work. One of the very successful members of my team, a young lady also, uh, came into my office looked at me, smiled, and said hello, and she burst into tears. I'm probably selling, I actually don't make people cry all the time, but anyway, that's my story today. And she's not the crying type. And I looked at her, because you kind of know these things, and I said, I think you have bad news for me. <laughs> well, we had become very close. She was a very effective salesperson for us at Decision Commodities, but the nature of that position in life was that you were on the road a lot. A lot of it in the wintertime when the roads aren't very good because that's when the sales seasons are big for selling risk management products to farmers in the U.S. Midwest. But she had been very successful, but she had also expressed her aspirations for where she wanted to go with her career, which of course is uh, somebody who wanted to be a mentor to her I was very interested in. And she had expressed clearly that she had hoped that she would not be a field-level salesperson for long in her career, that she aspired to be a part of a marketing department at an agricultural business, and that she eventually aspired to uh, be married and start a family and have children and all that sort of thing, where the road warrior routine doesn't work very well. Anyway, we sat down and she said, I've interviewed for a job with another company that's just started a marketing group, they're growing very rapidly and I would be the number two person that's a part of it, but I just feel terrible. I feel like interviewing with them, I was like cheating on a boyfriend. And I said, no, definitely not. Tell me more. So she explained that it was the number two position at a brand new uh, marketing department at this fast growing precision agriculture technology company. She explained what her responsibilities would be. She explained broadly at least what her pay would be. She explained at least as she understood it at that point in time what the upside of that position would be. And it was good. But she wanted to give me a chance, I suppose, to counter offer or something like that. So I thought about it for a moment and I said, you know, there's two sorts of conversations we can have. And she said, what are they? Number one, I said, we can have a conversation where I say, you know, I can make you the vice president of marketing at Decision Commodities. I can put you in charge of our $50,000 annual budget that we have for marketing. We weren't a terribly big company at the time. I can give you a raise in pay, although with your commissions, you're doing quite well. 
and so forth. She said, what's the number two conversation? I said, number two is I can say, congratulations. I know this position is fitting with the direction for your career that you want. I think it might even be a little bit of a stretch for you. I think the pay might be a little bit more than you are actually worth, but <laughs> congratulations. Good for you. And unfortunately, it was that conversation that we had. I wished her well. We talked about the transition. But as she was walking out the door, I could see the dollar signs floating behind her. She had been a very effective member of our team. But it was the right thing for her, even if it hurt our efforts at building things. And today, she's still my friend and has had a very nice career in marketing and agriculture and has a husband and two kids. And that mentoring part kind of gets to another one of the ethics as this one of the seven ethics is part of the entrepreneur's ethics and that is ethic five, be the real you. In later podcasts, we'll feature the entrepreneur that I did a case study on for the book, for the ethic, be the real you, Steve Jobs. But that will be for another day. Level one, is to be the be the real you. And so Steve Jobs, as is widely known, was a great case study in how he improved over the course of time, a very unique personality in learning how to express his unique talents in a way that worked effectively with other people and worked effectively ultimately in Apple to build it into the company that it was by the time he passed away in 2011. But level two is letting others be themselves. And so the case of me having somebody who was a great member of my team, but having an opportunity to go to another company and knowing that taking that position at the other company was an opportunity for them to become the best next version of themselves is level two. And level three is ultimately helping others become the best version of themselves. And hopefully that was part of the journey for her as well. Decision number three, the weird and the whimsical. In 2004 or five, Patty, my wife, and I had read an article in a magazine about the history of something that we just weren't aware of in Iowa, the history of the Underground Railroad. And so the Underground Railroad was a secretive network of people and locations who ferried fugitive slaves to freedom in the pre-Civil War era. And I am a big fan of history, and I was aware that in the eastern United States, for example, one of the most famous conductors on the Underground Railroad was a lady named Harriet Tubman. But it turns out that there was a history of the Underground Railroad in Iowa to which we were not aware. And so on a trip with our children, who in 2005 would have been 11, 9, and 6, Yeah, 11, eight and six. Anyway, they were quite young. We took them to some of these historic locations on the Underground Railroad in Iowa. Now some families go to Disney World, good for them. We're the nerd family. <laughs> it was a good trip. But the Underground Railroad in the middle part of the country, we didn't know that. 
Well, it ends up that John Brown, the infamous abolitionist who played a very prominent role in sparking the Civil War, had his last trip across Iowa in February 1859. He was well-known not only across the country in Iowa at that time. He had gained uh, notoriety, shall we say, in Kansas, bleeding Kansas, where abolitionist forces, of which John Brown was one, and forces advocating for Kansas to become a slave state had had bitter and bloody fights. Lawrence, Kansas, home today to the University of Kansas, had been burnt to the ground by Southerners who did not like the abolitionist activity that was taking place there at that time, for example. Anyway, it turns out John Brown had some very interesting times coming back across the state in February 1859, escorting 12 fugitive slaves ultimately to their freedom and then traveling ultimately to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, where he would try to take over a U.S. Army arsenal in November of 1859 that was ultimately put down by then-major in the U.S. Army named Robert E. Lee, who, of course, went on to be a general for the Confederates later on in the Civil War. Anyway, I remember that we stopped at John Brown's, what was called John Brown's Cabin in Nebraska City, just on the other side of the Missouri River, where there was a underground cave that kept fugitive slaves in hiding. A little bit further as you go across the Less Hills to Tabor, Iowa, the Todd House, where it had the same thing, a hiding place for fugitive slaves. On further to the east to Lewis, Iowa, to the Hitchcock House. On further east to what is today West Des Moines, to the Jordan House, where again you can go into the basement and find the dugout where fugitive slaves used to be hidden. For those of you from Des Moines, Jordan Creek, Jordan Creek Mall, Jordan Creek Parkway. There was a man before there was the creek. There was a man before there was the mall, James Jordan, the founder of a city then called, or a town called Valley Junction, today called West Des Moines, was an active leader in Iowa, but an active abolitionist and member of the Underground Railroad as well. And ultimately, with our children, I think our last stop on that two or three day journey was in Grinnell, where the founder of that town, a man named J.B. Grinnell, was also active in the Underground Railroad. Well, what does that have to do with mentoring? I will get there in just a moment. But at that time, I began to ask, how do I tell the story? Some historians had done really good work in documenting some of the history to this. <clears throat> But in my view, at least some historians are better than others at actually telling the story. So I am not an historian and I do not play one on TV, but I do like stories and I do like stories from history. And so I began to sketch out what might be the story placed in February 1859 during this time of John Brown making his lap last trip across Iowa with this group of fugitive slaves that he was taking towards freedom in Canada. So between 2005 and 2009, I began to draft a book, placing some fictional characters alongside some actual characters like James Jordan, like J.B. Grinnell, like many others in a chase scene, if you will, except with horses and wagons and on foot instead of cars across Iowa during this very bumptious time in U.S. history. 
And so I got maybe the first 10 chapters drafted. But then around 2009, this change in my life happened where I came back to Iowa State University to run an entrepreneurship program. And somehow that, along with perhaps my propensity to drop projects too quickly, I put it down. Zoom forward to 2016. One night over dinner, Patty, as she was thinking about some, own her, some of her own transitions in her professional life, said, what would you think of me picking up work on that manuscript? And I said, I think that would be cool. She said, send it to me. So long story short, between 2016 and 2019 to 20, most nights I would come home and Patty would read me drafts of the bulk of what became a book that is called The Only Free Road that got published that year. So what the heck does Underground Railroad in Iowa have to do with mentoring and writing a book? Well, <laughs> number one, these brave souls that were a part of the Underground Railroad at that time recognize that the inherent worth of an individual is significant. And so they had not only courage, these people who helped fugitive slaves, as well as the fugitives themselves, but they had that most rare type of courage, and that's moral courage. And so today we can very easily look back and say, well, of course, slavery is wrong. Well, of course, the right side of history to be on was abolition. But if you put yourself back in the civil pre-Civil War or Civil War era, it was not that easy. And Patty and I were able to dive into some of that history and do that. But people like James Jordan, people like J.B. Grinnell, people like Harriet Tubman <laughs> had significant courage and significant moral courage and they were on the right side of history, but the things that they did oftentimes hurt their business, hurt their reputation, <laughs> and were really difficult to do. Because although Iowa was on the side of the Union and would per capita send more soldiers to the Union Army than any other state in the Union, it was still controversial. Bringing fugitive slaves, even in a secretive network, to ferry them to their freedom brought troublemakers to Iowa, bounty hunters, slave catchers, people that brought violence to communities that normal, everyday people in Iowa did not appreciate at the time. And so it became a big controversial thing. Last, why write a book? Well, first, because I think it's an interesting history and a story that needs to be told, but it recognizes that a form of mentoring can come from taking inspiration from others. And so Patty and I do a performance we call uh, Missives of the Civil War instead of just doing a book reading. And so we've had the pleasure of doing this 30-minute one-act play of men and women reading letters, real characters from during the Civil War, back and forth about what their experiences were during this really difficult time in our country's history. And so we did one in Winterset, and there was a nice little crowd there. And there was an older gentleman who had come in early tall, lean gentleman who looked to be in his 80s, but in really good shape, had a full steel gray beard, weathered features, but a very delightful, nice man. We got to the end of the performance, took some questions about the book, 
Patty asked the crowd if there was anybody there who knew that they had ancestors that had participated in some way in the Underground Railroad. The gentleman raised his hand and said, I do. Patty asked who. He said, my name is Grant Jordan. My great-grandfather is James Jordan. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> we said, we hope that the way that we portrayed your great-grandfather in the book does honor to him. And that indeed was our biggest worry in the whole thing. Did we do honor to those people that were brave enough to put themselves on the line? Did we do honor to the people who were the fugitives and the slaves at the time as, as well? Anyway, he seemed to think that we did okay. But he had a memory of being a boy when the family still had possession of the Jordan House, which is now an historic place that you can go visit in West Des Moines, but he had a memory of playing there. He had some memory of stories about his grandfathers, and I couldn't help in looking at him to note that there was quite a bit of a resemblance between him and the pictures that we have of James Jordan. And so ultimately, the story that we tried to put together embodies the profoundly courageous and entrepreneurial people that built this region, this state, and this country. And so we love it, of course, when anyone reads and enjoys the book, but we really like that when it's a young person that does it, because the story is a call to each one of them to fiercely lean into their work, whatever that is, to leave their fellow citizens in a better place. Perhaps today we don't have anything quite as dramatic as what Iowans and, our, and Americans did in 1859, but still I think we have important work that can be done to make the lives of our fellow men and women better than they are today. So let me finish with just one more story about Ewing Marion Kaufman. Kaufman had been in the Navy during World War II as part of the Signal Corps. He was first in the Atlantic Theater, where he was fighting Nazi Germany, of course, and then in 19, later in the war, he was in the Pacific Theater as the war wound down with Japan. Kaufman was entrepreneurial even as a soldier, and so he certainly didn't mind being paid, but the pay wasn't great, and so he supplemented that income in what you might call an entrepreneurial way. He played cards. And he played cards in some pretty high stakes card games. If you remember from the podcast about him, later he would love statistics. He would love studying those. He would love figuring out odds and how to invest in players for the Kansas City Royals. Anyway, he started working on kind of that mathematical brain very early on when he played cards and gambling games. But he had some other entrepreneurial activities as well. In particular, he discovered while in Morocco, while in the European theater, that off-brand cigarettes donated by tobacco companies to the Red Cross for the soldiers weren't used. And yes, the Red Cross donated cigarettes to the soldiers. Different day. <laughs> but soldiers could buy their favorite name brands that probably were better quality cigarettes for like six cents a pack. Yeah, different day for sure. And so they found ultimately that they couldn't give these off-brand cigarettes away. And so Kaufman had struck up a friendship with a bartender who became an outlet for these extra cigarettes that couldn't even be sold. And so it turns out that Moroccans thought they were pretty good cigarettes and they were a better deal than what they could get. And they could sell them below the name brand sort of prices because they got them for free. And so Kaufman, the frugal Midwesterner, just hated to see anything go to waste, even cigarettes. And so his bartender friend and he in Morocco 
split the profits on the cigarette sales, and he subsequently took those profits, sent them back to his wife in the United States in the form of a money order. Soon, Kaufman read an article in the Stars and Stripes magazine, the magazine that was set up for U.S. soldiers to read. There, there was to be an investigation, and that investigation was to determine why some military personnel were sending home more money than they made in salary. Uh-oh. He was one of those guys. He was sending money back that wasn't just a little bit more than the salary he was making. It was a lot. He was good at cards, and he was good at selling cigarettes that he was able to get for free. So Kaufman was substantially worried. He approached his superior officer, a guy named Captain Crenshaw, about a friend who was worried about the investigation. Crenshaw, of course, saw through the ruse, and he said that he thought nothing would come of it if his friend stuck from then forward to his Navy responsibilities and quit the cigarette scheme. And so from then on, Kaufman confined his entrepreneurial finance to the card tables, and he always remembered Crenshaw may have done, or thought that Crenshaw may have done something behind the scenes to discourage military authorities from investigating his really large money orders, because Kaufman probably rightfully suspected he may have been sending back the most money of any soldier in the entire U.S. Army. Yet, he didn't get investigated. And he never forgot what Crenshaw had done, or at least what he thought he had done for him during that and perhaps some more dangerous circumstances. Again, quoting Kaufman, I think those experiences taught me something that loyalty goes down as well as up. And we do try to carry that forward here at Marion Laboratories, he said. And by the way, those cigarette sales profits became a significant part of the startup cash Kaufman used in 1950 to start Marion Laboratories. Here's to good mentoring.